Alright guys, well as I was saying, we're going to be finishing up Judges tonight, Lord willing, that is the, the plan at least, and there's a lot to say because of that, so I want us to not only consider the text that we have, which is going to be all of Judges chapter 21, but also I want to think of the book as a whole. So let's just get started reading the text, so you can open up your Bibles to the 21st chapter of Judges, the last chapter, the reading of The word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And the people were not enough, but, excuse me, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and the south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers came to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That ends the reading of the holy and sufficient word of God. Let's spend a quick moment in prayer asking him to bless our time as we think about it. Our gracious and holy Father, we need you and we thank you for
preserving your word for us on this text especially just shows us some of the depths of depravity that we can slide into. And so we pray that you would cause us to learn from your word, that Holy Spirit, you would apply it faithfully, and that you would bring about good fruit in our lives that glorifies you and that contributes to your glory being spread across this planet. This whole universe is yours, Lord, and we pray that you would be glorified in every sector of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so to begin tonight, I want us to think about the book as a whole. So we'll deal with some of the bizarre and crazy and questionable events of the text in just a moment. I first want to think about kind of the book as a whole, because this is the gospel according to Judges. That's what we've titled the series. Now this is the 48th sermon through it. And the point of that is to say that at every turn in this period of judges, that we are being pointed to Christ, to a work that only Christ could do, all in light of massive failures at nearly every turn. And even when Israel did what was right, it was at that point a testimony to the faithfulness of God, his, his, continued, his continued love and mercy towards this nation of Israel because of the promises he made to Abraham and then to Moses, this covenant group of people. God's grace, his kindness, his patience, his long-suffering, and then more is all on display as he carries out his plan of redemption in time through the specific events that we've been reading. Yes, even these horrible type of events that we're reading here in like 20 and 21. And at the same time, all the while doing this, he's engaging with the nation of Israel through the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, which, of course, we know is not a covenant that saved anybody. It was not a covenant that promised eternal salvation. It was not a covenant that promised the forgiveness of their sins. It was not a covenant that promised the reversal of the curse in the garden to Adam. But it was a covenant that was filled with types and shadows which pre, that pointed to Christ and what he would do. And it preserved the people because God would fulfill the pactum. He would fulfill the covenant of redemption that he planned among the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit from even before the creation of anything. And the plan in that Pactum, the covenant of redemption, was to bring his son into the world through the nation of Israel, through that specific people group, and the people who come from Abraham, because, you know, God made promise to Abraham, right? We remember that in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And all of this was so that the Christ would be born into this world in a context in which he would actually be born under the law, but without the the guilt from Adam, because he was born in a miraculous way, remember? He was born of a virgin. He doesn't have any sin inherited, even though he's truly a man. He doesn't have any sin inherited from Adam. So he's born into the nation of Israel, which exists in a system of laws through the Mosaic Covenant, and he's faithful to all those laws. He's born under the law, and he keeps the law perfectly. He never once sins. And then... Because of that, he's able to earn salvation for those chosen in him from before the creation of the world. Christ purchased us with his blood, is what Galatians 3 says. So Judges then, or the gospel according to Judges, 
is an important book in explaining to us why we need Christ to save us and what God did to bring us the Christ, the Messiah. Because Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, is prophet, priest, and king. We know his last name is not Christ, right? It's not like I'm Paul Abeda, this is Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah, it means, it means Savior. So we need him as our Redeemer to execute those offices for us, prophet, priest, and king. And so God, before this time period in Judges, he actually introduced these roles in his covenant kingdom to his people already, the role of prophet and the role of priest. He's already introduced these types of people into his covenant people group. Uh, think of like Moses was a prophet. His brother Aaron was a priest, and all the Levitical priests would come from Aaron. And so you already have them existing at this time in Judges. And we've seen them even do good and bad in Judges. And whether in that good or bad, whether they fail or they succeed to live up to the call of their office, whether it was priest or prophet, they're pointing us to Christ. But what's missing in this period of Judges is the office of a king. Now, God, of course, is king. We know that. We've talked about that at length already. And these judges, they almost serve as a type of a king. They, they almost kind of do the things that a king would do. And even in, in some cases, the judges were almost like declared kings, made kings. I think of Gideon. Remember, Gideon was asked by the people to be a king, to have like a dynasty, and Gideon turned it down. But what we're seeing, though, is that people need a king. That apart from a king, apart from someone who is ru a ruler, more powerful, more wise, People will just do what's right in their own eyes. And as we've seen in Judges, that ends up in disaster at so many levels, so many different turns. It's going to end up in rebellion. It will end up in chaos, just like we've seen here with chapter 20 and 21 in Judges. And in 1 Samuel, Israel is going to get a human king, pointing them then to Christ's execution of that office of a king. And the king, of course, he defends and he protects, as we discussed in small group time. Now, none of the kings, not David, not Solomon, not Hezekiah, not Josiah, none of them were the promised king. Jesus is that king. And we need Jesus as prophet because he teaches us the word of God. And we need him as priest because he dies for our sins and he intercedes for us. And we need him as king because he rules over us and he protects us. And Judges is telling us that and often in the way of a negative example. It's saying like, well, look how these prophet, priests, and kings, or judges, which aren't quite a king, they're not doing those offices in the right way. And so that tells us you know, that we need one who's better, one who's greater. It tells us that in a negative example. So when we read Judges and think about the, event, the events contained herein, we see that we need Christ's redeeming work for us. And even though Israel is in an old covenant relationship with God that we aren't, Right, none of us in here is in the old covenant. None of us in here is, you know, obliged to uh, take an animal to a temple to have our sins atoned for. That we do. None of none of us is in the old covenant. Even though that's the case, we can still learn some things about us from Israel and how God interacted with them. So hear me out here for a moment. We are not. Are we as God's people? If you're a Christian tonight, you are God's people, right? Uh, you are, if you're not a Christian, Jesus would say that you're of your father, the devil, right? You're not, you don't belong to Christ. Uh, you're still trapped in your sins. 
But if you are a Christian tonight, we are God's people. But we're not God's people in the sense that the nation of Israel was God's people. Meaning that we're not in a covenant with God in which God promises temporal, meaning in time, blessing or cursing dependent upon our obedience or disobedience. So try try to make this clear. If you go out and if you are a Christian today and you go out and sin and you you're not then automatically put under the the wrath of God until you go and make an, at- an atoning sacrifice at the temple. Because and, and neither if if we as a collective group all fail to do what is right and good majorly, that's not going to plunge the whole nation into into a judgment because the world is already under judgment. And I don't want to get too far ahead of me here, but if we are in Christ, we are blessed, period. No matter what's going on in your life. Remember our, our verse that we were trying to memorize from last month, Romans 8, 28? Uh, for, therefore, all who, for all that love God and are called according to his purpose, are there, therefore, he works all things together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So even the, the bad things that happen to you in your life, they're not God's wrath and his judgment upon you as a Christian. It's part of his sanctification in your life. It might be discipline for his sins that are still existing. So it's him conforming you to Christ. It's just like a father who loves his son or daughter, disciplines his son or daughter. So everything that happens to us is to work for good. You're, if you're in Christ, you are you are blessed. You are blessed. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.13. We are, again, disciplined as God's covenant, great, covenant of grace children. And when we sin... But this is a lovingly father act towards us. People who are not in Christ, people who are not saved, they are what's called in Adam, like Romans 5 says. And they're not seated with Christ. They're not blessed in Christ. Some may taste of the blessing, what it means to be a Christian because of proximity, because of closeness to Christians. They may even be false members of the church. Think of it from your guys' perspective, okay? Actually. Most of you have Christian parents. I think you all have Christian parents looking around this part of the, well, that's right. But most of you have Christian parents. You, just by simple, even before you became a Christian, just for the simple fact that you had Christian parents, you could be rightly called blessed just because of proximity towards your Christian parents because your Christian parents love the Lord. They want to live a holy life. They want to live a life that's pleasing and right to God. And so your parents aren't out, you know, using drugs and sleeping around people. Like we have a, a foster daughter whose parents don't know the Lord. And because of that, directly related to that, you know, the parents are indulging their sin. She's not with her birth parents and Lord willing will be able to adopt her pretty soon. So just even by proximity of being next to Christians, you are more blessed. But truly, if you're haven't trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're still technically and properly speaking cursed in Adam and enemies of God, even Proverbs six would say, if you're not saved, if you haven't been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The covenant in which people are in who are saved, it's called the New Covenant. It was promised in the Old Testament. Think of like Jeremiah 31, also in Ezekiel. And it was established in the New Testament. 
It's the covenant of grace revealed. And if you're in this covenant, you're blessed because Christ is blessed. If you're not in this covenant, you're under the curse that Adam's sin brought upon and, and which your own sins have merited too. But since we aren't in a covenant as a society and a culture which mandates God to bless or curse us, curse us as a whole based upon our collective obedience or collective disobedience, it's possible that we might enjoy freedoms or suffer many injustices in our society regardless of actions and efforts from people who are saved or not. So think. This has been true for every nation ever, besides Israel when they were in the Old Covenant. Why did Rome or Egypt or Babylon experience such great success for a time, even though they didn't seek to serve and honor the one true God? Do you know how long Rome lasted as an empire? How much? Oh, I thought I heard you say it, actually. It's like 700 years. Do you know how long the United States has been around? A little bit over 200, going on 300, right? 1776. So from an outside perspective, man, like Rome it did so well. But of course, you know, they, they lived wickedly and they weren't pleasing to God. But God even at one time um, calls Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar his servant when he's bringing them against Israel in judgment, right? Because of their covenant breaking. The reason for this The reason why a nation who doesn't even know the Lord can rise to power and be, quote, successful, unquote, is because it pleased God in accomplishing his redemptive purposes. That's it. It happened according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Why has America for nearly 300 years enjoyed freedoms and prosperity, things which seem to be coming to an end, even it's true, of course, that we did start our nation and it was based with Christian principles. Not perfectly, but they're there, of course. But look at us now. now. I'm 41 years old. I barely recognize the this country, this state, in comparison to when I was a 20-year-old. I lived my whole life here. And the interesting thing about that is that we, even though we aren't in a national covenant with God based on our obedience or disobedience, we still share a commonality with Israel, who was in a covenant based upon their obedience and disobedience. We share commonality with them. And this is actually true now for the most of the world, even because of the spread of the gospel. Because the gospel has gone so far. The gospel has gone out to you know, all the corners of the earth. There's still, I, last I heard, the number of tribes and people groups that like don't have even like the, the Bible in their own language. Is, it's a pretty big amount. So there's a lot of people that I'm assuming still need to hear the gospel and be introduced to the truths of God's word. But if you look at a a big globe, every major continent, there's Christians on it because of God's grace and his plan to build his kingdom. And so because of that, um, the world, generally speaking, has a grasp of God's law, has a grasp of the Ten Commandments, Western civilizations for sure. Maybe less so now for people your age, but people my age, definitely. Everybody was somewhat aware, and in the United States, is somewhat aware of the Ten Commandments and God's holy law. But think about Canaan, though, back in Israel's day. Think about Germany or China or the Americas during the Old Covenant time period. They didn't have the law of God revealed to them. 
Yes, they had the light of nature on their hearts, their consciences, Romans 2. But compare that to today, to most Western or first world countries today. Now, even if you're a Christian or not, you have some idea of what the Ten Commandments are today. Most people in the world. They know of them, maybe they don't know them well, but there is some knowledge that is added to the conscience that all people have already. And so the point that I'm wanting to make, what we see because of this, is just like for Israel here in Judges and beyond, who had the law revealed to them, and yet they didn't desire to keep it, they are, in a sense, like westernized cultures like us today, who by and large have the law and yet don't desire to keep it. The law has been revealed to us, yet, of course, not everyone who lives here loves that law. My friends, this is a clarion call for us. It is a shout that we all need to actually know the gospel because it's the gospel that changes the heart. It's not the law that changes our heart. Just simply knowing the law isn't going to get you saved. We all need to be born again. Israel, having the law, didn't need to righteousness. We've seen that. That's how we closed this chapter even. They said that they all did what was right according to their own eyes. And us today here in the United States, simply knowing the law isn't going to lead to a righteous society. We need the King of Kings to come and consummate his kingdom. We need, as we as citizens of that kingdom are waiting and serving and glorifying Father, Son, and Spirit until that time that the Son comes again to defeat death on the last day. And so Judges reminds us of this, that simply having the law isn't going to produce results of righteousness. What needs to happen is a person needs to have a heart change. And then the law becomes lovely to you at that point. So we'll get to say more about that in a moment. Um, let's review the text, the issues and the message of the chapter. So verse 1 you're looking at your Bible. Verse 1 begins right on the heels of the events that happened in chapter 20. And here we now learn of a, of a rash oath that Israel entered into, which we didn't know about before. Apparently, the 11 tribes, remember, they, they've come to go to war, to go figure out what's happened. How could this woman, this concubine, have been cut up into 12 pieces and sent to all the different tribes? Something needs to be done about this. So they all come together and what ends up happening, of course, is Benjamin doesn't want to apologize or repent or give up the worthless fellows from Gibeah who did this. And so there's a war that's going to happen, the 11 tribes of Israel versus the tribe of Benjamin. And there was an oath that took place among the 11 tribes that we didn't learn about until just now. Uh, the 11 tribes at this point are essentially viewing Benjamin as one of the enemies of God. And... I mean, he is not repenting from his sin. He is acting like an enemy of God to their credit. Uh, they're not looking to eradicate sin from their people. And so at some point before the battle or maybe after the first or second loss, uh, Israel, the Lev tribes, made this rash vow at Mizpah saying, not one of us shall give our daughters to him in marriage. To Not one of us will let our daughters be given to the Benjam Benjaminites for marriage. So they're pretty mad, right? And we'll never let our daughters marry a Benjamite. We testify we swear by your throne god something along those lines they say something like that like for example i would never seek to approve of any of my three daughters marrying someone who doesn't know the lord you know kind of like that sort of like a vow like, i just wouldn't i wouldn't want to do that but it's more serious for these benjamites here are these uh 
the tribe of Israel because they make a vow before the Lord to never let that happen under the you know, penalty of their own death. So you understand the principle. But the issue here is that you can't just forget a vow that you made with the Lord God. He's too great. You can't fail to live up to the vow that you make. And so that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, well, don't swear by heaven or by the throne because you know God is much greater than you. It's not bad to take oaths or anything as long as they are good biblical oaths and you intend to keep them. But remember back with Jephthah's account, um, you know you have to take oaths seriously. We talked about that some months ago. Well, verse two, the people are still weeping at Bethel, but now it's because they feel bad for their kinsmen. They've kind of come to their senses now, kinda. They realize they've basically wiped out Benjamin. There's no more women left. In Benjamin, no more children. They killed them all, and, and they are they feel bad about that. They're weeping, they're crying. One tribe is lacking in Israel is what they say at the end of verse three. Verse three is a bit ironic actually. It says they they cry out, "O Lord, O Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, why has this happened?" <laughs> you killed. You did it right. You you killed them all. I mean, whose fault is it? their own fault in a sense uh, this happened in israel because israel's a nation regardless of the covenant that they were in were just as pagan as canaan well almost as pagan certainly so the gathered tribes are weeping they're calling out to the lord they're offering sacrifices they remember at that point another rash vow that they took before it all went down that if any group of people from israel didn't come out to fight against benjamin then those people were going to be put to death and destroyed as well and those people are the people from Jabesh Gilead. And that's a, it's a town, a city, a providence located within the territory that was given to Manasseh. So they have to deal with that issue as well. And then this they is – They are Israelites. Manasseh is from the tribe of Israel. So but it's just – Jabesh Gilead is Israel but though, it's too. it's just one city, so they're not like – Yeah, or province. Not sure. Yeah. And they're just – they didn't come down to fight against Benjamin. So – and it was another vow again. So they have to go through and do it. So here's the issue they have to deal with. And here's where their plan is formed. There are 600 men from Benjamin that are hiding out the rock at the Rock of Ramon. If you remember that from last week. At the end of Gen, uh, Judges chapter 20, 600 men escaped. The, the, all the rest were killed. But 600 men escaped. And Israel is sorry that these men have no wives from Israel. They, they feel bad that they've almost that they've almost wiped out a whole tribe. There's only 600 people left, and there's no women left for them to marry, to have families and, and still remain a people group. And so they can't break the oath that they're in and let their daughters marry them either. And it wouldn't be right for them to marry Canaanite women because then they're just going to intermingle with sin and synchronize, and they're going to do that anyways, of course. But that's their dilemma. And so the plan is to go to Jabesh Gilead, since they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And the plan is then to wipe all of them out, Amri. And they're going to wipe out men, women, children, everybody, except for any virgins. It's in a way, I mean, as crazy as this sounds, as, you, know, there's, you can see the corruption of these people still in some way, although in some way, it's an act of mercy towards Jabesh Gilead, and they end up, you know, with sparing some people when initially the oath was to destroy them all. And they end up 
coming out of that with 400 young virgins for the men of Benjamin. Problem though, there's 600 men of Benjamin. There's, so there's 200 guys that are left without a possibility to have a family. So verse 13, the tribes are all reconciled with Benjamin. We can presume Benjamin trusted them because of the 400 women that were obtained for them. This is all very sketchy. I understand that. I have no idea how that worked. Like, did they draw straws for which girl was going to be theirs? Who got to pick first? I have, it's strange to us in our culture, certainly. Now, verse 15 needs to be considered for a moment. Let me read verse 15. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribe of Israel. So here, the author of Judges says that the Lord, Yahweh, was to be considered in the division of the tribes. So here's Pastor John Gill in this text. He says, For though this was done by the Israelites, yet by the permission and according to the will of God, it was through his overruling providence. So in other words, Israel has done this. They're the ones who have done it. But God is the first cause. His will is being accomplished. What Benjamin did was wrong. And God is holy. And this war against Benjamin was because God was dealing with them in their sin. The Lord God was the author of their punishment. And Israel was the tool by which God brought judgment. So in a way, it's just like how Israel was the same thing to the original inhabitants of Canaan. Right? Israel had to remove the Canaanites because it was a picture of God's judgment upon sin. And he was using Israel to do it. Or like how Assyria was a rod in the Lord's hand in Isaiah 10. But there's still a problem here. Again, there's, they're 200 ladies short. And they can't break the oath they made about giving their daughters up. So they come up. so crazy, right? This is, this is what, remember, the Bible simply records what happened. It doesn't say this is what you should do always. This is just showing us what's going on in this culture. And we talk about what that means for us already. So they can't break the oath they made about giving their daughters up. So they come up with this plan. And it's all contained in verse 16 to 24. And it, the plan makes it so that the 200 wifeless Benjamites can get a wife from Israel without the Israelites having to break the vow by giving them to them. So the plan is literally to steal a wife. They're going to steal a wife. They're going to kidnap a, a young woman. From themselves. From themselves. There's a, there's a yearly festival to the Lord at Shiloh, and young women go there to dance in the vineyards. And by kidnapping them, essentially, by taking them, Israel gets to absolve their conscience since they nearly wiped Benjamin out. Remember, they feel bad for doing that now. They're like, well, they're crying. We almost wiped out Benjamin. And now, since they are getting these wives for Benjamites that remain, they're absolving their conscience. And since the people in Shiloh don't know about the plan, it's not like they're giving them to Benjamin and they're breaking the oath. So as weird as it sounds, problem solved. And that's almost how the book ends. They all have their families, and they go back to their inheritance in the land. And remember, this is very early in the judge's timeline, within 100 years of Joshua's death, meaning that the whole book of Judges is basically what verse 25 says. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think we first read that in Judges 17. But really, you know, if we're placing this event here at the beginning of the period of Judges, that was really their mentality throughout the whole thing. And there's a clue here as to what the problem is for Israel. 
you would think perhaps that it, their problem was these pagans that they lived among. Well, I just, I, I act this way because this is how everybody around me acts. You might say, like, well, this is how all my friends do something. This is how, and so this is why I do this thing. Uh, perhaps you think maybe that the people around them, the pagans that live there, are the, or if they're the reason as to why Israel is sinning like this, that maybe that's the reason why God warned them to expel them from the land. But, but that's not it. Uh, because, you know, possibly Israel would learn their ways. And there is some truth to that, of course. We did read over these 21 chapters many times in many ways in which Israel was essentially Canaanized, in which they synchronized with their religious practices and combined them with the worship of the one true God and then turned it into false worship altogether. And there is so there's truth in that, of course. And the New Testament mentions as well that the world is the Christian's enemy along with Satan and, of course, and the flesh. But that's not the main reason for these for the holy wars. The driving out of the Canaanites, well, again, was judgment on the sin that was supposed to be a typological judgment or the final judgment for everyone who, who rejects Yahweh in any age or any nation. But Israel's problem wasn't primarily something outside of them. It wasn't the people that were there around them. It was them. It was their own flesh. It was their own nature. Their own humanity that has fallen because of, and cursed in Adam. They consistently did what was right in their own eyes. Judges chronicles the corruption of fallen man, of fallen men, of fallen men who even know the law of God. And so who's the biggest enemy in Judges? It's not the Philistines. It's not the Baal worshippers. It's the Israelites themselves. It's their flesh. It's their own sin. They failed to recognize that they need God as king, and that they should have they should have done what was right in His eyes. Yet they have no king, and they do what's right in their own eyes. And that's very much like people who live in the United States today. By what authority or by what standard do we do the things that we do? If it's not from or by God, then we are in a way no different than Israel here, in rebellion and in danger of the wrath of God, because we all at some point must come to the understanding that if we're not trusting Christ, then we are still in our sins. Turn with me to Romans 8, if your Bible is still open. Turn with me to the 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So this is still, you could break Romans into three sections. If you want to think of it like that, you could break it down into, and this is like a gospel summation, guilt, grace, and then gratitude. So guilt is the first uh, seven chapters, and then grace is eight, to ele- or is 8 to 11, and then 12 to the end is gratitude. So, And there's some overlap between these things throughout the chapters, but basically the, the beginning part of the book of Romans establishes the fact that we're all sinners and that we need to uh, have our sin problem dealt with. Then 8 to 11 is the grace portion, which has that focus then on what God has done to solve that sin problem. And 12 to 16 is gratitude. It's like how to live then as a Christian. So this is obviously... Um, Romans 8 is in the grace portion. There's a little bit of overlap here. So this is what it says in verse 5. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's grace. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life, is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you see, having the law of God isn't going to simply make you capable of being pleasing to God. Because the person who isn't saved doesn't love the law of God. They won't submit to it. They cannot, is what Romans Paul writes to the Romans here. It's If it's not possible, and even if it was possible, in some weird theory, even if it was possible, it wouldn't overcome the guilt we inherited or that was imputed to us from Adam. Romans 5 goes over that. What the law does when it comes to a person in the grace of God is that it shows us our sin. It sets a standard that the faith-filled eye looks at and is crushed under. The weight of the holy and good law is meant to crush all of man's pride, fallen man's pride, and cause us to seek help from the one who can help with it. So Pastor R.C. Sproul says this. He's talking here about the three uses of the law. The, the second use of the law is to restrain evil generally in the world. It doesn't mean that does it perfectly right because there's a lot of evil, but it restrains it. It withholds it some because of the, the light of nature in man, their, the conscience that we have. And then the third use of the law is to show Christians how to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord. But the first use of the law is this, and this is again R.C. Sprawl. He says his first function is to be a mirror, reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. As Augustine wrote, the law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weaknesses under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. The law is meant to give knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20, 4.15, showing us our need of pardon and our danger of damnation to lead us in repentance and faith to Christ. The law is a tutor or a schoolmaster, in other words, to point us to Christ. It's, it's our own sin that is keeping us from being pleasing to Christ. Our own sin on top of the guilt that we inherited uh, from Adam, that's the enemy that we should be most concerned about. It It is your flesh. When you have the Christian as three enemies, the flesh, the world, our flesh, the world, and the devil, it's your flesh that is omnipresent. You know, the, the devil can't be tormenting a Christian here and then on the other side of the world. He's not omnipresent. The world, I mean, you could theoretically escape from it. Like you could go live in a tent all by yourself in the woods and you could be away from the influence of the world. But you can't escape your flesh. Your flesh is always with you. Your sin, your nature that's fallen in Adam follows you wherever you go. And so Christ Jesus is the only remedy for this condition, friends. Do you look at the law and see how high of a standard it is that God has put before you, but then also see that he's provided for us a way in which that standard might be met on the account of another? It's the kindness of God to show you that. And it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We read Romans 2.4. He preserved his word. The reason that we have Bibles is because for the purpose of his elect that they may hear and know of what God's word is. They may hear and turn to him. And that for those who do know the Lord may grow in grace and may get to know the Lord all the more. 
God the Son, the eternal Logos, comes into his creation. He's taking to himself a human nature, being born under the law. And he never once violated. He never once sinned. He did what we couldn't and wouldn't. And then he offered up his life on the cross after suffering and being humiliated. And he died there. And this was all in accordance with the scriptures. And God was pointing to this through the Old Testament. The, the, the blood over the doorposts in the Passover. This bronze serpent that was lifted up in numbers. The righteous branch of David. All pointing forward to what Christ would do. And then according to the scriptures, he rose on the third day and then ascended to heaven after being seen by many of his disciples. And he now lives to make intercession for us. To pray for us and to keep us near to him. All praise be to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This work of salvation is from start to finish all God. So when you know the enemy, the enemy being your own sin, then you could properly look to the one who can help you because you can't deal with your own sin problem. Not in a way that leads to forgiveness. You can actually deal with your own sin problem. And there are million, billions of people that do deal with sin on their, their own themselves. And it leads to an eternal life of damnation in hell, of suffering and punishment because of their willful rebellion to God. And nobody is in hell saying like, oh, I, I didn't want this. No, in a, in a way, that is what they want. They didn't want nearness to God. They don't love God. And so that's how they take care of the penalty of sin themselves. But Christ has taken care of it uh, as our king. He's defended us and protected us. And he went to the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins. He's the king Israel needed back then, and he was looked forward to and anticipated by some in Israel. Listen to Psalm 96, 11, 13. It says, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's Amen. Christ Jesus is the righteous king who judges faithfully and in righteousness. He's the one who can defeat the problem of sin in your life. I can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. It is only, you can't, you know, grow in knowledge and understanding and then something strength and do it yourself. It's only Christ. He is, he's the king that you need. And that's the gospel according to Judges helps us to see that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us so perfectly, for knowing exactly what we need, God, and sending to us a Savior who is like us in the sense that born under the law, yet even though we sin and can't help but sinning because of the curse that Adam put us under. Our Savior, your Son, our Lord Christ Jesus, was perfect and flawless without iniquity. And so we thank you that his righteous life has been accepted and accredited to us so that we might share in his blessing. Let us never forget the gospel, Lord. May we remind ourselves of the gospel every day. And as we read through the Old Testament in our personal devotion times, let us remember the gospel even then as well, because we know that 
the gospel is what brings you glory, and it is the gospel that is the power of salvation for all men. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Any questions or anything? Done with judges. No? Okay.